1: That was alarming. All right. So our theme music just went off. Don't panic. I'm not panicking. So if you own a TV set or maybe um, get a newspaper or have access to almost any kind of media uh, over the last 25 days or so, you've become at least somewhat familiar with the case of Jennifer farber dulos She has disappeared. She's been gone for that amount of time. Uh, She has not been located. Um, And a lot of other themes have emerged in that case. Now, on public radio, I mean, obviously, the commercial media, they cover this stuff uh, with uh, w- with quite a lot of avid interest. Uh, and I'm not going to, you know, pronounce judgment on that one way or the other. People are interested in a story like this. Uh, they see it, I think, as pretty good for ratings and clicks and stuff like that. Anyway, we don't cover stuff that way. But I have felt from the beginning that there were issues in this case. Uh, that are important, and that the amount of interest that there is in the Dulos case can be a way of getting people to see other aspects or shining a light, uh, so to speak, uh, on, on certain aspects uh, of this case. So we're going to look at three of them today. Uh, in the second segment of the show, we're going to talk about race. Um, I personally do not think it was an accident uh, that when it came time to dispose of evidence uh, in this case, it does appear, based on video surveillance or video cameras that are in place by the Hartford Police Department, uh, uh, paired up with uh, cell phone signals, uh, that Jennifer Dulos' estranged husband. Fotis Dulos uh, and his paramour, as they say, in the court filings uh it, it does appear as though and police are saying that uh that they disposed of things making thirty stops uh, in the north end of Hartford along Albany Avenue. I don't think that's an accident, I think. They were trying to—well, we'll we'll talk about that anyway. What what role does race play in all this? How do people in the north end of Hartford perceive something like that, an attempt to dispose of bloody evidence in their neighborhood? And then uh, in our third segment, we are going to talk about—I didn't really realize how pervasive— Uh, the police surveillance cameras were in Hartford. It's part of an operation called C4. We're going to tell you more about that and how it compares to other operations around the country, what kinds of issues surface uh, within an operation like that. Uh, But we're going to begin with what I think maybe is the most pressing question. I just said to our producer, Betsy Kaplan, if, if we accomplished nothing else today, I would want us to be able to tell a woman who was afraid. Uh, afraid of violence from a spouse, an ex-spouse, a partner, whatever, uh, uh, something that she could do about it. Uh, Jennifer Dulos, Jennifer Farber Dulos, does appear to have been uh, fearful uh, of some kind of reprisal from her estranged husband. Uh, so the question is, what's out there and, and what else could be out there that's not out there now? That's where we're going to start. Uh, we've got two guests here in this segment. One of them we're going to identify simply as Colleen, simply because I don't. Uh, she, she has her own story story. story here, her own case that involves this. I don't want to get into a big back and forth with lawyers from the other side. I just want to be able to talk about some of the things that that crop up in this case. She is herself an attorney and a volunteer for Family Civil Liberties Union uh, and a, as I said, survivor of domestic violence. Also joining us, uh, she's been on our show before in a very, very different context is Mary Jane Foster. Mary Jane Foster is now president and CEO of Interval House uh, here in the Hartford area, uh, which is just a tremendous resource for uh, women and families uh, facing domestic violence, trying to do something uh, to escape domestic violence. And by the end of all this, we want you to know uh, what some of the resources will be. We, uh, As usual, we'll do a show page about this show that'll have the audio from the show, but any other information we can get to you, and that'll be at wnpr.org slash Colin. You should be able to get all of our shows there, including this up-to-date one. So um, let's get going. Um, Colleen, I'm going to start with you. Um, When you read about a story like that of Jennifer farber Dulos, I I, I take it it brings back memories and it reminds you uh, of what happens when a woman is in that position where she is fearful for the safety of herself and maybe of her children as well. You went through this. What did you find that you could do about it to try to make yourself safe, uh, the rest of your family safe?
2: Um, I think that one of the most concerning parts of this case is that there is a lot of women in the Farmington Valley area and throughout Connecticut and if not the country that have been triggered um, by the Jennifer Doola case and that we identify with her. And it frightens us. And I'm somebody who went through um, something similar, not, not, I, I, not comparable but, but in the extreme by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm fortunate to be able to still have a voice and be able to speak um, because I got out earlier. Um, I think that one of the biggest problems with domestic violence in high-income families is that we're not believed. And the reason for that is that I believe that when you come from a certain educational level or strong family background or pedigree, it's hard to fathom that anybody could get control over you. It's hard to fathom that anybody could control a woman who is strong and an attorney or comes from a good family and has strong family supports in place. And I believe that the courts need to have more education on how that comes about in that it's not you don't wake up one day in a cage Mm -hmm. it's a slow progression like a seduction or a disease that creeps up on you um for for me it was i I, the first apartment that we lived in together i didn't have a key to it he never got it cut so i couldn't leave the apartment and come back
0: Mm
2: -hmm. um without him so i was controlled in that sense or i would go to the store and i would come back and i would get ten things right and one thing wrong and he would love me in spite of my ineptitude. Mm-hmm. And eventually, bit by bit, they creep up on you, and they change you, and they strip you down, and then they try to build you up of something that you're not. Um, and then it, starts, it can start to get dangerous once you lose control of yourself.
1: So did you, feel, if, did you fear for your own physical safety?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. He, at one point, he um, took out a $4 million life insurance policy on me as agent and beneficiary, and he put petrol in the brake fluid of my car. He was the only suspect in an incident in which petrol was put in the brake fluid of my car. And that was confirmed by the mechanic. It was confirmed by GEICO. The insurance company paid for the repairs on that And because it was confirmed. But even then, when the police came knocking on my door and great crimes were called, I said, no, there, there must be some other explanation because you want to, you want to believe that this couldn't happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, and part of it, part of it is, is and I hate you, you People believe in what they see from the outside. They see you, you're, you look a certain way, you're successful in your life, you have the nice house, you've got the good-looking husband, um, everything is a success. People look at you and you don't want to shatter their dreams and you don't want to admit that your life is a lie. And you don't want to admit to all the people who saw the red flags that you've suspended him to, you don't want to tell them that you're right. And if you have a child, as I did... You, you don't want to leave and have your child in a broken family because you still have hope that things are going to get better.
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to just, uh, I'm, I'm, we'll come back to that in just a second, Colleen. I want to switch over to Mary Jane for just a second. Uh, one thing that we will reiterate uh, today is that there are hotlines that you can call. One of them is uh, Interval House's 24-hour hotline uh, answered by an Interval House crisis counselor. That's 860 527 550 I hope nobody listening needs to write that uh, number down, uh, but it's 860 550 if you do. There's also a Spanish hotline, 844- Eight three one ninety two hundred. 9200 Mary Jane Foster, uh, one of the questions I really did want to have answered today, whether it's Colleen, whether it's Jennifer, whether it's somebody else with a different first name, what can a woman do who has a reasonable fear of violence from a, a spouse or partner or estranged partner?
0: Well, you know, I, I'm so pleased that, that you are doing this show and we're talking about this issue because we don't have the facts of this case. Mm -hmm. But what we do know is that Jennifer Dulos was afraid for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a New Canaan case. It's a Farmington case. It's an all-of-us case. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a woman who was absolutely terrified and for whatever reason did not understand or didn't know that there was a hotline to um, an agency filled with advocates who could help her understand what she was facing, help her plan for her own safety, help her plan to leave if that's what she wanted to do, help her advocate and navigate uh, the court system. And so my my heart breaks that Interval House in Hartford, um, which covers Hartford and the surrounding 23 towns, including Farmington, was not there for her, mm-hmm. whether she didn't know about us or... Um, she was afraid to call us. Um, doesn't really matter. Our job, given the facts of this case, is to get out into the communities and make sure that women understand there are resources, they are confidential, they are free, and they are 24 7, 365 days a year. You know, uh- and that's the most important thing. Takeaway from me about this case.
1: I think I think it is too. Uh, we'll also mention the Connecticut Domestic Violence Hotline in just a second too. There's uh, multiple sources. Although Colleen, back to your point, it sounds as though. To me, as though you're saying that when these things happen by degrees uh, and and when some uh, of the uh, manipulation is is psychological, um, that the person who's in danger, the person who's imperiled, the person who's going through this may be the last person to understand how dangerous it is because part of the abuse cycle is to kind of confuse you uh, about what kind of situation you're in.
2: That's absolutely. There is a lot of gaslighting in place and it's other people can see it sooner than you can. I remember one of my friends had said, your friends aren't important to him because he would shortchange them when we're out at restaurants. The guy had $13 million in his bank account, but he was shortchanging people. He was isolating people. He was taking over my phone. Um, and and uh, you, you don't see it. Everybody else sees it around you. And even looking back, I can't understand how I didn't see it.
1: Um, Colleen, what did help you ultimately? I mean, what kinds of instruments? I mean, were, did you were you able to get a temporary restraining order or a civil protection order? What, what kinds of things helped you navigate your way through this? Oh, oh
2: no, as as a mom in a in a high income family, you would never fall for a protective order. Um, but what did help me was Interval House West used to have a presence in Simsbury. There was a wonderful woman called Shanti Rao there, and my son also had a nanny, Wendy Firsthand. Who um, helped me get out? She was instrumental. I never would have would have would have survived the, this without it. But I think what was worse was that when I went to court, um, I initially served him with separation papers to go down to New York, hoping to file for divorce there. Because if you file for a protective order, you're going to have the effects of narcissistic rage coming after you. So you want to leave hope to get narcissistic charm on your way out. I just didn't do it right. And. He filed for divorce a week after I filed for separation to keep me in the state, and he used the courts to abuse me by proxy. Um, it was I, I, the courts was harder to deal with than the violence itself. You, you, you think you're going somewhere for, for help, but they're they're not helping you. Um, he he had control of the finances, so he had four attorneys on one side of the room, all yelling at me at the same time, and I would have one underfunded attorney and the other side giving me limited representation until I couldn't afford her anymore and I had to go self-represented in a deeply personal, highly emotional matter where you lose objectivity.
1: So, you know, uh, Mary Jane Foster, she's making uh, a number of interesting points here. But one of them is, uh, obviously, if you're in a situation where you're fearful, where you're either receiving abuse or feel that you're about to receive uh, physical violence, uh, the smart thing to do is leave. But Mary Jane Foster, that's also in some ways the most dangerous thing you can do. It's a provocative I, thing. It's
0: not in some ways. It, in, it is, by every statistic, the most dangerous time in a battered woman's life is when she leaves, which is why safety planning is so imperative. And sometimes the safest thing to do for the moment is to stay mm-hmm. and and figure out how, how your planning is going to take place. I'm also a family law attorney, and I will tell you, uh, which I try to explain to people, that when we have victims of domestic violence come to court, it's not like they, they've had that experience before. So it's not only safety planning and the hotline services, but the advocacy that we have in the courts. We are experienced in navigating the system, in helping victims get through to understand whether it's a restraining order or a protective order, which courts, how, how to, how to do all of this. My advocates, the interval house advocates are not lawyers but we are advocates. We are always there for the victim. And we know the system. We know the people who populate the system. And we can help keep a woman safe and get her to the place where she needs to be because that's what we do. That is the work that
1: we do I think that's an important thing to stress Mary Jane so let's, let's say it again a different way I mean I, I was involved with interval house uh, in terms of some fundraising and stuff years and years ago I don't know how much things have changed uh, my information's well, come way out on of date you know, I'd be happy to do that first of all but that that is a real offer but um uh, at the time there was were, there were safe houses there was a place that somebody could go and people didn't know the location I assume that's still the case
0: that that is the case but a safe house um is really and to go to Colleen's point, once you have been alienated from your family and all of your friends, as well as your resources, your job, your money, and so forth, that's, that's what a safe house is for. Very often, most often, our victims have a resource. There is someone that they can go to where they can stay. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be in the safe house to get our services. Oh, yeah. You don't have to leave to get our services. We have all of those things available. We meet victims where they are.
1: Right. And so, uh, Colleen, uh, you know, this is, uh, I think, also very on point for your experience. When I first started reading about this case, and I, I can't say that I've followed every jot and tittle of the Dulos case, but uh, I probably, like a lot of other people, thought, well, why didn't Jennifer Farber get away, go go someplace where this man couldn't hurt her? But then it occurred to me, well, no, this is some kind of protracted case, uh, a custody case. This was a woman who was trying to live her life in a very uncomfortable, difficult, and, and, and fear-inspiring situation, but there's probably a limit to how long you can disappear, particularly if you're uh, trying to figure out uh, what's going to happen with the custody of your children.
2: Right. So she, she moved down to New Canaan, which was a very smart move, because you can't leave the state and file in New York, because she would have had to file um, to get residency there first. Um, but then when she went to the court and said that he was abusive, he turned right back around and said, she's abusive, too. And the courts threw up their hands there and they don't know who to believe. And the attorneys are at each other. They're agitating conflict. Um, I don't know why they're Agitating conflict, but there's a lot of people earning a lot of money. And there's a lot of mothers that I know, 73 in the Farmington Valley area, who have gone to court, reported domestic violence, and lost custody of their children because they're accused of being um, not fostering and encouraging the relationship with the other parent. Um, and I don't know what track Jennifer Dulos was on, but she was fortunate in that the one dynamic of domestic violence that she had overcome was that usually the coercively controlling man, and I don't know if Cotus Doulas was coercively controlling. I'm presuming based upon the media that I've read, I don't know the guy personally. Um, We'd like to give everybody a presumption of innocence. Um, But if he was a coercively controlling man, he managed to not control the finances because she had family money. And she had outgunned him in the custody proceedings. So the level of force that is normally levied against a mom was now levied against an abuser. And I think that that's what makes this case very different, because if you shoot water at a snake enough, it's going to turn around and bite you. And um, with a, women, we have an introverted response to abuse from the courts, um, family court attorneys who are looking for money, for um, hours, agitation. Um, and oftentimes a, a mom will have PTSD, or a nervous breakdown, or curl up and die. There's been suicides in the Farmington Valley area. There's been children who have died in the middle of these custody disputes. Um, but when it, that force was levied upon a guy, he didn't have an introverted response. He, his survival instincts kick in. He's losing his home, he's losing his business, he's losing his house, and he may have done the unthinkable. I'm not, I'm not saying that that is forgivable in any sense. Of, I do not condone violence in any way, shape, or form. But just like when we look at school shooters, we look at the factors, the conditions that created the school shooter, of the, the, the guns and the mental health or the bullying or the gaming or whatever it might be, we have to look at the factors that created this monster, if he is a monster. Um, and part of that was the family court attorneys who didn't stop going after him in a scorched-earth approach. They were coming after him from three different angles. Until if you have a snake in the grass and you know he's a snake in the grass, you put him in a cage early on or you leave him alone. If you come after him and come after him and come after him and he's an already bad guy, you're going to have a foreseeable outcome.
1: All right, so um, before we run out of time here, and, and obviously we could have done an entire show on this topic, and there's so much information to get out. First of all, I want to give out also the Connecticut Domestic Violence Hotline. Uh, you can be immediately connected with services in your area by calling the toll-free number. Uh, it's 24 hours, again, one 774 2900 in English, 1 844 831 9200 in Spanish. We'll have all this up at WNPR.org slash Colin. And once again, uh, also the Interval House 24 hour hotline, 860 527 0550. Mary Jane Foster, I'm going to give you a, a quick last word here. Uh, and I mean, what, what I'm taking away from this is if somebody's listening to this right now, and she thinks maybe she might need these services. She probably does. She should probably at least make a call, access the, the vast amount of resources and services that you described, and, and at least find out. Um, but maybe you should be the one who, who says something about that.
0: Well, there there is. It's it's not ne- it's not necessarily easy for a victim to make a call mm-hmm. but if you can make a call and you can reach out to the hotline and again it's 8605270550 you can talk through your circumstances to one of our advocates you can you know get get a check on what your current reality is we can help you think through what is safest for you and for your children and we can help you plan what your next steps are, and we will be there for you wherever you are and for however long it takes to get you through um, to your safer, better life. We are there, and if I could, if I could wave a wand and do anything, it would be to raise awareness of the resources that are out there, and understand that if you are a victim or you you're not sure you're a victim, but you want to find out more about this, we are here for you. We will always believe you. All right, We will be there for you.
1: That's an important point to make, Mary Jane Foster and Interval House. You guys do great work. Colleen, thank you so much for sharing your own story and what you've learned from other people. We'll take a break. I do think that there's a racial component to some of the behavior exhibited in this case, the way uh, what appears to be evidence appears to have been dumped uh, in a mostly black neighborhood in Hartford. Let's talk about that after this. So if you followed the Dulos case, one thing that you probably know uh, is that ultimately Hartford police discovered um, a vehicle driving up Albany Avenue in the north end of Hartford, uh, making, I think, about 30 stops uh, along the way and along the way disposing in the trash of various things. Uh, these things appear to have been bloody evidence, that kind of thing. I believe the last thing disposed of was a FedEx box that that contained license plates that had been tampered with. Uh, You and I may have processed that part of the story in whatever way we process things, particularly if we're suburbanites here in Connecticut. Most people in Connecticut are suburbanites. In the city, I think it landed very, very differently. And so here to help us understand more about that is Steve Harris, former captain in the Hartford uh, Fire Department. Uh, Connecticut State Marshal and Hartford uh, City Councilman, uh, and a guy from the neighborhood, a guy who's uh, lived in the north end of Hartford for a very long time and knows a lot of people. So, Steve Harris, thanks for spending some time with me today. Thanks for having me. So, when this story started to spread around, started to be uh, up on television and in the newspapers, uh, I would gather, I would imagine that people uh, in the neighborhood started talking about it. How did they see it? How did they process it? What did they think had happened there?
3: Well, like everybody else, um, first of all, I want to say that I hope whoever's responsible is caught Mm because I can feel for that family. My family's had two sides yeah That have been unsolved in the city mm-hmm. the one thing that seems to be different though is this this particular incident seems to be drawing a lot of attention right.
1: Right. And I do, I do want to talk about that a little bit later in our conversation. I, I think there's something wrong with that, too, the fact that this kind of story gets such a disproportionate amount of attention compared to uh, some of the other stories that involve different kinds of people. But before we get there, Steve, what did, did people see this as an attempt by somebody to put evidence in a neighborhood in order to suggest that maybe the perpetrator came from that neighborhood?
3: That's my sense. Yeah. That's my feeling. Obviously, I can't speak for everybody but that's when i saw that you know and i heard that it just became for me just another instance of somebody doing something wrong and trying to lay the blame on those of us that live in north harford or shift the focus of attention to north harford
1: right i mean i mean i think there are a number of ways to interpret this I and mean, all of this is based on so far police allegations we don't have firm sworn testimony about all this but let's assume that it happened pretty much the way that it's unfolded in the press my initial thought was this this is maybe a person who has such Uh, arrogance or maybe disdain for people who are not like him, that he feels he can just go stick, you know, uh, bad, ugly, nasty evidence uh, in in somebody else's neighborhood. Maybe he feels also this is a neighborhood that people don't watch over or care about the way that they do in fancy West Hartford and Farmington neighborhoods. I kind of missed the idea initially that, as was the case in the famous Charles Stewart case in Boston, he might be trying to point police at a very different kind of perpetrator. But I, I gather that's what you and maybe some of the people that you talk to do believe.
3: Oh, absolutely. And things like that put men like me in danger because we become suspects. And once you become a, a suspect, sometimes you're treated differently, you're approached differently. And look, I'm not naive. I've been around long enough to know that North Hopper has a negative image because most of the images you see about North Hopper... I'm positive, but I just want to understand and say that folks in North Harford are no different than folks anyplace else. We want clean, safe streets and good schools. And again, situations like this, and I'll be very honest with you, when I first heard about the dumping of uh, whatever it was in garbage receptacles up and down Albany Avenue, my first thought was, Jesus, I hope this ain't a black guy. Mm-hmm. And I'll be very honest. With you. That was my first reaction. I hope this isn't a black guy.
1: No, that is understandable, and and yeah, I think it's also worth saying here that um, I mean I've lived in this area pretty much all my life. Uh, I live, you know, I could I could walk to Upper Albany if I wanted to from where I live, but we do live in very segregated worlds still. There's a lot of people who maybe they'll go to a Yard Goats game, which is you know uh, 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 way up up on the far end uh, of that neighborhood, but they they uh-huh. they don't they haven't been to Scott's Bakery or whatever they 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 don't know that neighborhood, and when something like this happens, I think one thing that you may be saying, Steve, is it also drives home that perception that there's something wrong with that neighborhood and that people who don't live there shouldn't go there.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I've lived in North Harford all my life, and it pains me to hear uh, when I have people say, oh, don't go to Harford, don't go to North Hartford. Mm-hmm. I've never been in North Harlem. Their perceptions of what they see visually and hear. Uh, and what they read about. And again, I just, I'm, I'm going to reiterate that folks in North Harford are no different than folks in West Harford, Cisbury, wherever. They want to know that where they're living is safe, clean, and valued. I don't think folks value North Harford.
1: I think that's that's true and I know that there's been an awful lot of work done by people like you and by uh, Upper Albany community leaders for decades to just improve the quality of life there improve the the visual statement that uh, Upper Albany makes there's there's so much that has gone on and it feels as though it must feel to you as though it's you know two steps forward and three steps back that you make progress but some of it gets erased in in headlines like these
3: Oh, no, absolutely absolutely and it's it gets frustrating it gets frustrating, but, you know, we, we just have to continue to try to make it better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, some of the things that happen, obviously uh, we, 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 we have to take ownership for, but that's a small percentage of things that happen. The good things that happen, you hardly ever hear about in North Iowa. We just had four young uh, black high school students win a a national a uh, 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 contest, a Facebook contest, uh, with an app. You know, I mean, just mm-hmm. you, you don't hear about those good things. And and again, it's frustrating that somebody who has perpetrated this heinous act felt that it would be safe for them to come down the street in North Hartford and deposit their whatever in hopes that that would lead the authorities to believe that somebody in North Africa because that's all bet, that that will be up and down all, all the folks that live in North Harvard mm-hmm. was dumping that evidence. And that just, that enrages me because again, just like that Stewart case in Boston, when that man professed that it was a black man that, that did those things to the his wife, it wasn't a black man in a 10 mile radius that was safe that night on the street.
1: Mm hmm. So that bothers me. One thing you, Steve, that you alluded to earlier in our conversation, and I think it's also another thing is something that has bothered me for years is that. You know, a different level of importance does seem to be assigned to crimes in which an affluent uh, white person or affluent white family, uh, th- when they're the victims, uh, that obviously, uh, in fact, black people are victims of homicide at a disproportionate rate. They're about 50% of homicide victims in America, the 13% of the population. But for the most part, it's almost as though people feel it, though, that there's, in, in the back of their minds, they may never say it this way, but they- they almost feel that there's an expected or acceptable level of violence in urban neighborhoods that they don't have to really view as tragic quite the same way they view the tragedies of people more like themselves
3: well you know, in, in, I don't know uh, that's how i feel mm-hmm. and again you know i belong to a family that's had two unsolved homicides mm-hmm. and i don't i don't recall this this amount of attention that was paid by uh, harford p d or other you know law enforcement authorities in regards to the investigation of the two homicides that took place in my 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 family, so when we talk about justice being blind uh, i you know again that's that's where you live and what your stature is in in my my mind and many folks that live in in, in cities and urban areas like 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 harford. Believe that where you come from and who you are will determine the kind of care treatment that you'll receive.
1: I think a lot of that is driven by by the both the pre, with the way the press covers stuff, and also the way the public processes that. The public just seems a lot more yeah. interested, and and that that's a problem. That's something where we need to kind of look in the mirror and and talk uh, to ourselves about it. Um, last thing I want to ask you about because it'll segue into what we're talking about. Obviously, one of the keys to unlocking uh, this uh, was the fact that there is something called C four. There's a, a command center in Hartford with a tremendous array of not only video equipment but data processing equipment that a allows them to interpret that video and 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 create more information out of the video i I would uh, well i'm just as a community leader as somebody's who been a leader up there um uh, how are you feeling about that
3: that's a double-edged sword for me i mean i understand that uh, advantage in this particular case it is kind of disproving what my worst fear was Mm uh but on a you know, on the other side of that, it concerns me that there's this constant sense of being watched. There's this constant sense of uh, somebody's waiting for you to do something wrong. Uh, again, I, you know, I, I see the good in it, but I also see uh, uh, what I consider maybe the bad in it, that that we've gotten to this point where I almost feel like, which but, but it, it's almost like an an electronic occupying force that has a under constant surveillance. But again, like I said, on the good side, it, 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 my fear, uh, in this particular case, uh, that it wasn't some
1: black guy. Right. I think double-edged sword is a good way to put it. Steve Harris, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Let's talk again under happier circumstances and about a more positive topic. Thank you uh, for now. We're going to take a break. We are going to uh, spend the last bit of our show talking about what Steve was just talking about, talking uh, about uh, the really rather startling amount of highly sophisticated equipment that Hartford now is able to use in order to quote unquote patrol its streets, but not using a car or a man on foot. All right. Uh, and uh, today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with a Wolf on the board and Jesse, a brand new intern uh, on the phones today. And thank you so much for listening to the, to it. And tomorrow we'll be doing a show on the 20th anniversary of The Matrix, which I suppose you could say in an odd way might sync up with some of the things we'll talk about uh, here in, in this part of the show. Uh, but uh, please tune in for that as well. So. Um, as most of you know if you've been following the case at all as i've pointed out before the hartford police were able to um, figure out using first of all the fact that uh, and you know a lot of this is sort of at the allegation stage but let's just sort of walk through it it appears that fotus dulos the estranged husband of jennifer farber Doulos, um, made a trip into the north end of hartford and he did not turn his cell phone off so it was uh, that was how it was possible to know but then it turned out that they had access to quite a lot of Of video coverage uh, of the street uh, where he and his confederate were uh, driving and and dumping out possible evidence. And I didn't know anything about this, and I thought it was really fascinating. So um, today joining us is Chris Mastroianni, supervisor of the Capital Community Crime Center, which we will start calling C4 after this. And uh, Andrew Ferguson is also with us, uh, law professor David A. Clark School of Law at the University of the District of Columbia and the author of The Rise of Big Data Policing also, and why jury duty matters. Chris Mastroianni, I'm going to start with you. First of all, thanks for being on the show today. Hi. As we look at this, maybe you can just sort of give people a sense of what you have there. It's, it's considerably more sophisticated than just you know cameras pointed at the street, right? You've got a lot of ability to interpret data there as well.
4: Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, we, we do have a pretty robust deployment of cameras, city cameras throughout the city. Uh, but I think more importantly, along when you have that much cameras and videos comes, what can you do with that video and that's where we do a really good job here in c four is uh with the the forensics behind taking video, extracting data out of the video, and getting the most out of it. One thing we've been pretty good at here is is enhancing video, taking video that maybe you can't make out a plate, you can't make out uh the type of car, and we're able to through frame averaging and, and different forensics able to enhance that video and pull something usable out of it.
1: Um, I also uh, was watching one video about your uh, about your program, and th- there were other times where there was at least one other instance that was described where, in fact, yes, the, the HPD cameras, the C4 cameras, couldn't make out a license plate on a car, but it could, in fact, figure out that there was a bus, I think, maybe right behind the car, and that the bus also had cameras, and by just building a chain that way, finding the bus, finding its camera, you were able to find a license plate.
4: Yeah, using some of our uh, mapping capabilities, we're able to see city vehicles throughout the city that are equipped with GPSs. And anytime we have a crime, oftentimes that will be something we look at. Is is there a bus that happened to pass by uh, right at the time that crime happened? And we have a really good uh, relationship with CT Transit. And we're able to pull that video and get footage that maybe we've never got before.
1: Now, do you also—I read a little bit more about the the program uh, interviews that have been given even to, like, security industry blogs. Um, At least at sometimes you've had also the ability to uh, track heat signatures of bodies. Are you still able to do that?
4: Uh, We do have some analytics we can put to our video. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't call it a tracking, um, but if we have some quality of life issues or or, or traffic issues in the city— um, using that analytic software, yes, we could see, um, maybe if you took an intersection, how many people are crossing the road as opposed to other parts. Do we need to put a new crosswalk there? Do we need to put a cop there? It's actually something we used with the uh, Yard Goat Stadium. We could see how many people were dwelling at certain sidewalks trying to cross, and we ended up deploying additional police officers to those areas to help with that.
1: But I would also gather that, let's say, that you have a suspected drug operation, if a heat map shows you that in a 24-hour period, 300 people went to the same door, that's going to tell you something, too.
4: Right. Same concept. Um, just taking it from the street and adding it to uh, uh, maybe a house that we've been receiving several complaints from the community of drug sales, um, again, pushing analytics to that video, being able to extract data, usable data and information out of it, like you said, I think the example you saw um, on the Internet it was the 300 people going into a door in 24 hours. Yes, I did. Uh, which is a pretty good indication that something's going on in that house. Um, and it actually alleviates having to put a cop on the street uh, with a pair of binoculars conducting that surveillance.
1: Okay. I want to add to the conversation. As I said before, we're talking to Chris Mastriani, a supervisor of the Capitol Community Crime Center of the Hartford Police Department. Andrew Ferguson's joining us now. Uh, his, uh, he's a law professor. His book is The Rise of Big Data Policing. Uh, and so as you're listening to this conversation, you're not uh, hearing, I don't think, Andrew Ferguson, anything you haven't heard before. Uh, and police... Uh, are very cognizant of what usually what the Fourth Amendment says. So the Fourth Amendment protects us against uh, unreasonable uh, search and seizure. Um, How does the Fourth Amendment come into play in situations like this, where there's it's not a human being standing there observing something? It's instead a huge collection of information which might retroactively tell us something.
5: Well, in two recent cases, the Supreme Court had said that long-term aggregated tracking is a uh, Fourth Amendment search, and without a probable cause warrant, Uh, might be unconstitutional. The question is whether this kind of system of surveillance where police can track a particular car through the camera system for a period of time isn't the same type of aggregated long-term search. It certainly hasn't been uh, answered, but it raises some real questions. And uh, just as one point, you say that uh, I'm familiar with this, but you should know that Hartford is at the cutting edge of this kind of technology and that what is happening with surveillance Surveillance capabilities in Hartford isn't actually happening in other cities in America and deserves some uh, hard questions because it does raise real issues of privacy, transparency, bias and accountability.
1: So, Chris Mastriani, uh, most police that I talk to, they know the Fourth Amendment pretty well. And and there's something called the plain sight doctrine. Uh, I assume that's one of the ways that you look at this, that you're not looking at anything that a police car patrolling the neighborhood also wouldn't be able to see.
4: Yeah, all of our cameras are, are, are attached to city poles, mostly at intersections, not covert. There are very large cameras hanging on a pole that anybody can see, um, and they can't see anything that a, a, an officer couldn't see with his own eyes.
1: Um, would Would that be different? in, in uh, Well, first of all, let me go back to Andrew. Maybe, Andrew Ferguson, you can explain to us what brief cam is. Sure. So, you know, BriefCam is a great example of big data policing,
5: this technology that's literally changing what police are doing and how they can sort of see the world. Um, Its power comes from this surveillance network of cameras that can identify objects and people and activities and movements and even heat, as mentioned earlier, uh, by time or color description. And it uh, gives the ability to essentially superimpose on a single Uh, video feed all of, let's say, the red cars that drove past in a 24-hour period or all the people wearing a red shirt, um, which can be tremendously powerful if you are the police looking for a getaway car of a red car or someone wearing a red shirt. And so what it can do is it can take essentially the information that a normal camera would see and be able to, through analytics, be able to use and isolate in time uh, to find particular objects, items, people, uh, and the like.
1: So, Chris Mastriani, uh, when you hear that described, I mean, all of us, uh, I think, uh, look at these things in a kind of double-edged way, to use Steve Harris's term from the previous segment. Uh, On the one hand, Andrew Ferguson just described something that would be an incredible tool for the police. And we certainly want to see uh, bad people uh, get caught and be pulled off the streets before they hurt anybody else or steal from anybody else. So if you can look at all the red cars and find the red car you're looking for, that's a good thing. But we also probably don't want to live in a world where we're constantly monitored, where we feel as though we're being watched all the time. So uh, even just philosophically, Chris Mastriani, what's your response to that?
4: Well, uh, a tool like BriefCam, we only use in a criminal investigation. Um, Oftentimes, I only have one person in this crime center. We're not monitoring, live monitoring the cameras. Um, Majority of the time, we're going back to a crime incident and finding what kind of imagery you have. And a program like BriefCam all it does is save you a lot of time. It's going to take, if I'm looking for that red car, I could watch four hours of video. Um, I could sit there and watch four hours of video, or the analytic can actually just find it for me. And a, a great example of this, being time sensitive it was a couple of years ago at the jazz festival here in Hartford at Bushnell Park, mm-hmm. where we had a missing three-year-old um, who got separated from his parents, and his parents were very uh, upset and distraught, and they were able to up, uh, communicate the clothing description to us, and we were able to find that kid in minutes, um, as opposed to. 30 cops walking around trying to find that kid and maybe he, he, something bad happened to him. We are able to find him in minutes and reunite him with his parents. And that's what it is. It's boy, that, that that analytic is a time-sensitive thing. It's just doing things quickly. It's it's nothing I couldn't do manually looking through video. Um, it's just doing it much quicker. And, and I'd also like to mention, too, a lot of the video in the city is not police video. I know we're concentrating on uh, mm-hmm. city cameras. I mean, uh, in the, the case of the photos in New Canaan, he goes on Albany. Ave. Yeah, there's tons of cameras in the city on gas stations, banks, uh, supermarkets. People have nest cameras, door door. It, it's there's everyone's got cameras on their houses, and the, the community has been very. Co- they've been very cooperative with helping in crime investigations and giving their video up. Um, so it's I, I don't. I want to straight away like we have. Yeah. We don't have a million cameras in the city, and every corner watching everybody. There's a lot of video. Um, where now everybody's going to Best Buy and buying a camera, and every bank and grocery store and gas station all have cameras looking out. Um, And we're just intelligently being able to to, to go back and see a crime and – investigate it with the image and the data we got. Yeah,
1: in, in, in New Canaan, I know the police asked anybody who fit that description, either a homeowner or a business owner or whatever, who had any kind of camera looking out onto the street on the day that Jennifer Dulles disappeared uh, to, uh, to, to share it with the police, and I would imagine people do that pretty readily. Andrew Ferguson, is there a question or two that you—we're kind of running out of time here, but is there a question that you'd like to ask, Chris M- Mastriani, about C4? Well, first, I I don't think we should minimize the
5: change that's happening with this technology in terms of uh, the ability to see. It's not just a a quick, uh, you know, efficiency thing. In order to find that three-year-old, which is a wonderful story, you had to be able to monitor all the other people in that area. And the fact that there are uh, cameras going up in in, a... gas stations and the like, is also going to be used by police who, in BriefCam, advertises that they're going to use those cameras to do this sort of larger surveillance net. And I think that's a change that we should be having a conversation about. Uh, I don't know what sort of democratic uh, over-accountability has happened. I don't know how much the city council is involved. I don't know what the accountability uh, mechanisms are or the policies are. But this is a huge change in personal freedom and security that we should be having a large conversation about. It can be good. It can be bad. I don't know which way it will turn out. But we should definitely be having a conversation uh, with a lot of public accountability as we go forward, because Hartford's at the center of it, uh, and we need to uh, see how this uh, plays out before we adopt it in other cities.
1: Um, So maybe, Chris, you could say a little bit about that. I don't know to to what degree either Hartford City Council or Mayor Bronin or anybody else uh, has concerns about this or is in dialogue with the police department about it.
4: No, I, I don't think anybody disagrees that there should be accountability, and, you know, we have that ac- accountability through surveillance policies and procedures and, and supervision. I don't think anybody would argue that. Um, and city council and the, and the mayor is involved with all of our technology purchases and, and they all must be approved um, through the city. Um, we're not sneaking anything and under the radar or buying right. anything. Um, but I, I definitely agree there absolutely should be accountability.
1: Um, I guess the other thing that uh, is in, well, there's so many things about this that are intriguing, but Andrew Ferguson, one of the things now that C4 and, and any police departments that are beginning to in, embrace this technology also allows you to do is to time travel, right? You can, you're not just stuck basically looking at the stuff that's in front of you right now. You can look back in time to see what happened.
5: Police are given a time machine to literally go back and have a surveillance capability they've never had before. Um, it is a game changer for policing for good or bad. Uh, and it is going to change, you know uh, how people, uh, sort of go about the streets. I mean, one of the the consequences, even talking about the concert, is you know their First Amendment issues as well as Fourth Amendment issues about you know their protests in Hartford, the women's march, their protests against police brutality. All of those are under cameras now, and all of those can be rolled back to see uh, you know who you know right now. Briefcam, uh, even though they advertise they could do facial recognition, I don't think there is facial recognition uh, at issue at Hartford, but they could, and that's the point. If you look at all their uh, their advertising, they say they can. Uh, but those are changes in terms of like. Like the fact that we are being monitored in public in, in ways that we just haven't been in prior uh, iterations of our uh, our lives.
1: Alright, it's going to may, involve a lot more conversations conversations like the one we're just having now I wish we had more time for this conversation I think it's also going to involve a lot of work by the Supreme Court ultimately to, to decide which parts of this are sufficiently effective and useful and not a bridging of our freedoms uh, to warrant their being kept in place, maybe not all of it will be. So, thanks to Chris uh, Master from the hartford police department for a very thoughtful uh, set of answers and also thanks to andrew ferguson uh, law professor at the university of the district of columbia and the author of the rise of big data policing thanks to betsy kaplan for putting together this show too thanks to you for listening because these kinds of shows it's sort of we, we do things a little bit differently in public radio i hope we really, really raised some issues that were important to you today